As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 223 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is a quite astonishing one, ranging from New Zealand, the Middle East and Scotland. Once again, I'm indebted to Hayes for the research and writing. Look out for her new podcast coming soon, Podcast She Wrote. Thank you to everyone who contacted me about my new book publishing company, Crime Publishing Network. We've received true crime and crime fiction submissions, but we need more. If you're an established author, or if you have an idea for your first book, but have been put off by talk of rejections, please come and talk to us. Just head to crimepublishingnetwork.com for more information. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new supporters. That's Angela Gillespie, Richard MacArthur and Wendy Atkinson. Thank you so much. Remember to send me your mailing address so I can post you some welcome goodies. And the competition for a free ticket to True Crime Live in Birmingham in October is open until the end of this month. Join us at patreon.com slash a UK true crime. Today's story is brought to you by my friends at World Car Parts. Based in Lincolnshire with worldwide delivery, World Car Parts can help you with a large range of parts for all cars, including car care and accessories. What I love most about this company is that it's a small business focused on customer service, focused on getting it right first time every time. So contact them now and speak to Harkin, Sarah, Rachel or Jody via phone, email, live chat or Facebook. The prices at World Car Parts are always great, but listeners to this podcast can claim an extra 10% off by mentioning UK True Crime. So why not check them out today at worldcarparts.co.uk. Support a local business and help this podcast. Thank you. Let's briefly set some context and play our guest the month and year game. Oh dear, this is a new low, even for this podcast. Number one in the UK was Come On You Reds from the Man United squad. Only slightly better in the US was All For One with I Swear. In Australia, the top-selling album this year was Mariah Carey with Music Box. Wow, what a selection. To think that I take the mickey out of the kings of Leon and Elbow. In the news this month, Formula One legend Ayrton Senna was killed at the San Marino Grand Prix. Nelson Mandela and the ANC were confirmed winners in South Africa's first post-apartheid election. In the UK, Labour leader John Smith died suddenly of a heart attack in London at just 55 years old. 
And in true crime news, Robert Black, who was jailed for life four years earlier for abducting a seven-year-old girl in the Scottish borders, was found guilty of murdering three young girls, Caroline Hogg, Susan Maxwell and Sarah Harper, who were killed during the 1980s. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a recommended minimum term of 35 years. Did you get the month and year? It was May 1994. Okay, on with today's story. Claire Morris was born on the 26th of December 1961 in Kent and was adopted shortly after her birth by Betty Morris. Betty later adopted Peter, giving Claire a much-loved younger brother. They had a happy childhood, and Claire, with her caring nature, decided to go into nursing. She excelled in her chosen field, and she knew that she wanted to put her career first before committing to any sort of relationship. When in her late 20s, Claire met Malcolm Webster, a fellow nurse, at a house party, and immediately fell for his charm. Webster was different to other men she had met. Like me in many ways, he was respectful, polite, attractive and charismatic. They began dating and soon moved to Aberdeenshire on the east coast of Scotland, where they both worked as nurses in the same hospital. Things were going well and to plan as Malcolm proposed, which Claire was delighted to accept. They married in a traditional Scottish ceremony in King's College Chapel, in September 1993, with Claire's brother Peter giving her away. The couple were blissfully happy to begin with, but Claire was becoming increasingly concerned by Malcolm's spending habits. His love of the finer things in life, mostly funded by credit cards. Also around this time, Claire was becoming quite sick. She was constantly feeling tired and run down, and she was sleeping for hours on end. She was lucky, I guess, that she had Malcolm, who was a dutiful husband, caring for Claire, preparing her meals, making her cups of tea and ensuring she always had a bottle of water with her to keep up her fluid intake. When friends and family expressed concern and suggested that Claire should see a doctor, Malcolm would always reassure them it was just a virus. After all, they were nurses and they knew that the best way to see it through was with rest and fluids. Although much to her husband's disapproval, Claire did eventually see a doctor, she would never find out the results of the tests that were carried out. Just eight months after the wedding, on the 27th of May 1994, Malcolm and Claire were in a car accident. Claire had been asleep at home one evening, when Malcolm woke her up to say he had to drop some papers at work, ready for a meeting the following morning, and it might do her good to get out of the house for a bit, so she should come for the drive. Claire groggily agreed, but once she was strapped into the car, she was soon asleep once again. They were driving along a road near their home when the car suddenly veered off the road, crashing into a tree. Malcolm was fortunate he managed to escape the vehicle, but tragically, he was unable to rescue Claire before the car caught fire and the engine exploded. He was forced back, watching in horror as his wife burnt to death. A passing car stopped and the driver got out offering assistance. Malcolm was hysterical, yelling that he'd swerved to avoid a speeding motorbike who'd been riding erratically. When asked if there was anyone in the car with him, Malcolm stated there was nobody else, it was just him. He surely must have been concussed and not thinking properly. When the fire engine arrived, Malcolm was now able to tell the firefighters that his wife had been in the car, but by then it was too late. 
Claire Morris was only 32 when she died. Malcolm was taken to the hospital where his blood pressure, pulse and pupil dilation were all declared normal. But he insisted he was in agony and he was medicated for the pain. Later, at Claire's funeral, Malcolm was still wearing a neck brace and suffering from his injuries. He was utterly inconsolable as he read from Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice saying, Beshrew me, but I love her heartily, for she is wise if I can judge of her, and fair she is, if that mine eyes be true, and true she is, as she hath proved herself, and therefore like herself, wise, fair and true, shall she be placed in my constant soul. And as Claire's coffin was lowered into the ground, Peter Morris grabbed hold of his grieving brother-in-law, fearing that he was about to collapse. With the assistance of several generous life insurance payouts and a string of women sympathetic to his tragic tale of becoming a widower so soon after his marriage, Malcolm seemed able to move on with his life, but the £208,000 he had received as a result of Claire's death was soon running out. Malcolm moved to Saudi Arabia for a fresh start, working for an IT company that sold specialist medical equipment to hospitals. It was whilst in a hospital in Riyadh that he met Felicity Drum, a nurse working with cancer patients. Felicity told Malcolm that she was working in the Gulf state to earn enough tax-free savings to be able to buy property in her native New Zealand. She too found Malcolm charming and courteous, and they soon began dating. When Felicity announced that she'd earned enough money to return home, Malcolm proposed and Felicity was delighted to accept. Malcolm accompanied her back to New Zealand and they married in Auckland on the 26th of April 1997. There was to be no wedding night passion, however. Felicity fell asleep as soon as their honeymoon began, only to wake 36 hours later. When she asked her new husband what had happened, and why he hadn't tried to wake her up, he told his confused bride that she must have been tired and needed the rest. The couple moved to Scotland the next month, as Malcolm had found a job in Aberdeen, and Felicity was certain she could find nursing work there. But soon Felicity was to experience similar symptoms to those of Malcolm's first wife, Claire. She was constantly tired, she felt run down, had no energy, and was sleeping more than usual. But by September... Felicity had discovered the cause of her symptoms and she confronted Malcolm of what she'd discovered. She was pregnant. That explained everything. During routine tests, doctors informed Felicity that there were some abnormalities in her blood that they should monitor and she shared her concerns with her husband, terrified that there might be complications for their baby. But a delighted Malcolm again drew on his medical knowledge and assured Felicity that everything would be fine. On this occasion, Malcolm was correct, and their son, Edward, was born healthy and well in May 1998, and life continued as normal. Felicity was still feeling tired all the time, but she now put it down to the fact that she was looking after her young son. But the Webster's lives were soon to change again, when a fire at their cottage destroyed many of their belongings. The family decided to move back to New Zealand, and put the remainder of their personal property into a storage facility in Aberdeen whilst they made plans. When Malcolm went to retrieve some paperwork there on the 12th of November, 
it was incredibly unfortunate that on the same day, there was a major fire at the facility, destroying millions of pounds worth of antiques, as well as all the documents relating to his finances. He was eventually compensated with almost a £70,000 payout from insurers, and the family returned to Auckland, staying with Felicity's parents until they found a place to live. The Websters soon found their dream home in a nice neighbourhood of Auckland. And although it was at the higher end of their budget, Felicity was able to get her half of the deposit together quickly, and she was concerned they could lose the house if they didn't act quickly. Malcolm assured his wife that he had the money. It was just tied up with his house in Scotland, and there'd be a slight delay in having the money transferred. The money must have come through because later that month the couple were on their way finally to sign the paperwork on the new house. Whilst Felicity slept in the passenger seat, Malcolm lost control of the car, telling Felicity who had woken startled that there was something wrong with the steering, he couldn't control it. They were careering towards a telegraph pole with the passenger side of the car about to make impact when in terror Felicity grabbed the steering wheel, feeling none of the resistance that Malcolm had experienced and she was able to prevent a more dramatic collision. As Felicity tried to leave the car, Malcolm screamed at her to stay inside. He was retrieving something from the boot when passers-by stopped to assist. Maybe from the stress of what had happened, Malcolm appeared to suffer a heart attack and he was rushed to hospital. But it turned out to be a false alarm. Signing the paperwork was put off for another day. Felicity had confided to her dad, Brian, that she was concerned about her health. She'd initially assumed that the tiredness was due to the pregnancy and then having a newborn baby. But Edward was now nine months old, sleeping well and was no fuss at all. There didn't seem any reason for her to feel exhausted all the time. She was lucky to have such an attentive husband though. Malcolm was always on hand to make her a cup of tea, cook her meals and ensure that she always had a bottle of water to keep her hydrated. By now Brian was getting suspicious and he encouraged his daughter to seek medical help which she agreed to despite her husband insisting that it was merely a virus and it was irresponsible to waste the time with the doctor. Then on the 18th of February Malcolm informed his in-laws that he was taking his wife and son on a picnic. They were all a bit stressed and he felt the fresh air would do them good. As Brian watched Malcolm help his daughter into the car, he felt with the father's intuition that something just wasn't quite right. He found Malcolm's locked briefcase where he kept his paperwork. He broke the lock and looked down in horror at what he found. Not only had Malcolm forged Felicity's signature and been systematically draining her bank account, He'd also taken out several life insurance policies in her name. Panicked, Brian called Felicity on her mobile phone. He was persistent and wouldn't stop calling until his daughter answered. It was this perseverance that saved Felicity's life. The ringing mobile roused her from her stupor. She answered groggily and Brian then begged her to come home. He said, wherever you are, you have to come home right now. It doesn't matter what Malcolm says, you must get back immediately. Felicity was heavily sedated and she couldn't understand what was happening. They were parked in a forest and Malcolm was pushing Edward away from the vehicle 
in his pushchair. Felicity stumbled out of the car and demanded to be driven home right now. Malcolm screamed at her, Why are you awake? before angrily putting Edward back in his car seat and doing as Felicity had asked. When they arrived back home, Malcolm was confronted with the evidence. Not only was there damning paperwork and emails on his laptop, which proved that Webster had been fraudulently stealing from his wife, there were cans of petrol, screwed up paper, and three lighters found in the boot of the car, strongly suggesting that he was planning to kill his wife and make it seem like an accident to claim the life insurance. The incident a few days earlier with the faulty steering wheel was his first failed attempt to kill his wife and Brian had prevented the second. Yet Malcolm Webster denied any wrongdoing. When Felicity asked her husband whether he was really going to kill her, he chillingly replied, I gave you a baby. You would have died happy. Felicity went straight to the police. As well as the fraud, arson and attempted murder, Tests on strands of Felicity's hair confirmed that she'd been systematically drugged with a combination of sleeping tablets and epilepsy medication without her knowledge over a long period of time, including while she was pregnant with their child. Webster fled back to the UK via Australia. With warrants out for his arrest, Webster was unable to return to New Zealand, so he decided to settle back in Scotland. By 2002, Webster was in another relationship, this time with Christina Willis. They'd not been dating long before Webster suggested they should each write wills, reminding Christina that he was widowed early into his marriage and would be devastated if anything should happen to her. Christina agreed. But then two years later, whilst working at a hospital in Argyle, Webster met theatre manager Simone Banerjee. He was immediately struck by her beauty and after looking into her background was even more struck by the fact that Simone was independently wealthy. Christine was quickly forgotten and Webster began to pursue a relationship with Simone. It was now several years since Claire's death so the tragic tale of the young widower was losing its impact. Webster needed a new plan. Dinner, flowers, romance? No, too easy. He shaved off his hair and eyebrows and told Simone that he was receiving chemotherapy for leukaemia and didn't know how much time he had left to live. And it worked. By January 2006, Simone insisted that Webster move in with her so she could ensure he was being properly looked after and the following month she changed her will to make Webster the sole beneficiary of her estate. During this time, Webster would have to go away for cancer treatment choosing to be seen by specialists in London rather than closer to home. Unbeknown to Simone, these overnights were simply a means for Webster to see sex workers paid for with her money. Webster wanted Simone to be lucky wife number three and he proposed with a £6,000 engagement ring. He had conveniently forgotten to mention he'd a wife and son in New Zealand and was therefore unable to marry her legally. Felicity had refused to divorce Webster, knowing that she was more likely to get a conviction against him if they remained married, while also enjoying the power it gave her over him, knowing that he could not marry anyone else. Meanwhile, Felicity's sister Jane had flown over from New Zealand on a work assignment with police in Leeds, 
sharing best practice in dealing with domestic abuse cases. She spoke to a senior police officer about Felicity's near-fatal experience with Webster. The family were now convinced that it raised questions about the death of Webster's first wife, Claire, and they were concerned he might be planning something similar now he was back in the UK. The threat was taken seriously and passed the Scottish police, who began to investigate Webster's history. So just who was he? He was born in April 1959 to parents Sandy and Odette. Odette was a nurse, and Sandy was a respected detective chief superintendent, chosen to head up the Met Police fraud squad. It was not a house filled with love, rather than one ruled by strict discipline and routine. Sandy and Odette were cold parents, shown little affection towards Malcolm, his twin sister Caroline, or their older brother Ian. The children would always refer to Sandy and Odette as mummy and daddy, even into adulthood, a mannerism that Felicity always thought as quaintly English. Webster discovered that he could get his parents' attention by pretending to faint, which he did frequently. This was so successful that Webster took his new trick to school, fainting whenever he was asked a question by a teacher or confronted for displaying poor behaviour. He was a prolific liar and was suspected of a number of arson attacks, his love of setting fires, earning him the nickname Pyro. Needless to say, Webster was not a particularly popular pupil and he left school aged 15 with no qualifications. He eventually decided to become a nurse like his mum and after training began working at a hospital in Abu Dhabi. However, after the unexplained deaths of three children under his care from heart complications, Webster was asked to leave. Just to be clear, there was no proof he had caused the deaths. However, the suspicious circumstances were enough to force Webster to return to the UK. It has been alleged that Webster's dad's influence might have had something to do with the allegations not being taken any further. But of course, this is just an allegation, there is no proof at all of this. It was shortly after Webster had returned to the UK that he met and started dating Claire Morris. But did he kill her? The police were convinced enough that they had grave concerns for the safety of Simone Banjuri. When it was discovered that Webster and Simone were planning on sailing away for a yacht in Regatta soon, police knew they had to intervene somehow and they were able to issue an Osman letter in January 2008. Osman letters came about as a result of the case of Osman versus the United Kingdom, where it was ruled that police have a duty to inform someone if they believe there may be a threat to someone's life. Upon receiving the letter, Simone was understandably startled and she initially refused to believe what she was reading. Talking about it later, she said, I thought it was complete nonsense. This could not be the Malcolm Webster that I'd known and loved. Confused, she told the officers that they got the name of Webster's wife wrong. It was Claire, not Felicity. The officers explained that Felicity was Webster's second and current wife. He had attempted to kill her for financial gain, and it was looking very likely that he'd killed his first wife too. Simone was told that her life was in danger. Once the devastating news had sunk in, Simone confronted Webster. His response was to demand to be admitted to hospitals. He was suicidal. Once more, 
trying to manipulate the situation to his advantage. A search of the house that the couple shared uncovered a laptop that Webster had stolen from the hospital and an unlicensed gun, which Webster claimed was an antique. When the couple's yacht was searched later in the investigation, it was discovered that Simone's life jacket had been tampered with, rendering it useless. Webster's jacket, meanwhile, hanging next to it, was in perfect condition. I think it's fair to say that the sailing trip was intended by Webster to be the last one that Simone would ever take. On the 28th of March 2008, Grampian police officially announced that they were reopening the investigation into the death of Claire Webster and appealed for witnesses to come forward. A crash team investigator confirmed it was highly unlikely that the car driven by Webster had swerved to avoid a motorbike due to the speed at which it was travelling and the low-level impact of the car hitting the tree. It was also put forward that the time that elapsed between the impact of the crash and the engine catching fire could only mean that the fire was deliberately started, perhaps by the cans of petrol that Webster kept in the boot of the car. Even more damningly, investigators found a tiny slice of Claire's liver that had been taken at the post-mortem. Initially thought to have been lost, they immediately seized upon the sample and sent it for testing, unsure whether there'd be enough tissue to get an accurate reading. Incredibly there was, and it showed an unnatural level of tomazepam present, proving without a doubt that Claire was incapacitated prior to her death, and would not have been able to leave the vehicle of her own accord. Like me, are you wondering why this crash was not properly investigated the first time? On the 30th of March 2008, Webster handed himself in to the police, but refused to answer any questions, responding only with no comment. And finally, in February 2011, Webster, then 52, stood trial at the High Court in Glasgow. The lengthy charge sheet included the murder of Claire Morris, attempted murder of Felicity Drum, attempting to bigamously marry Simone Banjari for financial gain, as well as numerous charges of embezzlement, fraud and arson. It ran to 11 pages and led to the longest trial of a single accused in the Scottish legal system. After 50 days of prosecution evidence, Webster took to the stand to dispute every charge. But in May 2011, it took the jury less than four hours to found Malcolm Webster guilty and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Webster has spent his time behind bars protesting his innocence and pretty much antagonising fellow inmates. In 2014, he became a peer educator and as such acted as a visitor guide to the prison exhibition and Frank, A History for Today. A visitor to the exhibition said he was confident and seemed pleased with the attention he was receiving. Claire's brother, Peter, who has been very outspoken against his former brother-in-law, said, Malcolm Webster might have some social skills. He might be able to be polite and open a few doors for people, but behind that facade is a murderer. I wonder if he got any of the visitors to sign up for insurance deals. It's all part of the Webster facade, where he still maintains his innocence. It sounds to me they've selected him purely on the basis he has an education and social skills to talk to people, despite the fact that his social skills also mix in with his psychopathic skills. 
The last words today, however, should go to Webster's survivors. Simone said, I do believe I'm very lucky. I think if it wasn't for Strathclyde police, things may have turned out very, very differently. Felicity Drum has been particularly candid in the years since and has been tirelessly highlighting how easy it is to be manipulated by men like Webster and credits her survival as justice for Claire Morris. She said, He's a psychopath and I feel extremely lucky to be alive. I really thought he loved me, but he had a completely different agenda. When I first discovered the truth, I was bewildered by the enormity of someone you've loved and made yourself vulnerable to acting in this way. His betrayal and heartlessness was just too hard to take in. Felicity's dad, Brian, was more succinct. He made a mistake picking on the drums. What a hero. So what do you make of what we've heard today? What a story. I said to Hayes, who researched and wrote this story earlier today, that I can't believe I'd never heard of it. Equally, I can't believe that he got away with the murder of Claire Morris for so long, can you? Thank goodness that he didn't kill more. I wonder now, as I often do, how he feels in his prison cell as you listen to this podcast. Is he planning for life when he gets out, if he gets out, or is he just resigned to dying in his cell? I would ask if he has any remorse for his victims, but I think we all know the answer to that one, don't we? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any aspect of UK True Crime, please head over to the Facebook group. And to support this podcast, join us at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime and find out all the information that I don't share on the show. Finally, don't forget to get your book idea to me and Catherine Yaff at crimepublishingnetwork.com. So that is all for me for today. Thanks so much for joining me. And a huge thank you to Hayes and World Car Parts for sponsoring the show. So until we speak again next week, do please take it easy. And most of all, stay classy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.